Welcome to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Located in El Dorado Hills, California, it is our mission to help others find and follow Jesus. We hope this message inspires, encourages, and uplifts you today. Welcome to church, friends. So fired up about today. As you just heard on Church News, we are having Lake Day baptisms. Right now, we officially have 36 people signed up to get baptized today, which I am so grateful for. And I, I just want to put all my cards on the table and be up front with you. I, I'm praying that some of you, maybe today, after you hear this message, would decide. Today's the day that I choose to get baptized. Today's the day that I, I put my faith in Christ, or maybe I put my faith in Christ years ago, but I've never publicly declared my faith in Jesus through baptism. So right after service today, doors open at noon. If you show up a little early, no big deal, but if you take the 50 down towards Sacramento off Hazel Avenue, you'll see the Sacramento State Aquatic Center, and that's where we're doing it today. It's gonna be a blast. Barbecue, paddle boards, all the stuff, and then baptisms, the main event, around 1 or 1.30. So please join us. It's an awesome, awesome day for our church, and I am fired up about it. Um, Hey, a couple other things I wanted to talk about, and then we will jump into the word for today. Um, as you heard, small groups are kicking off, men's and women's events kicking off in two weeks, and then we're launching into small groups for the fall. So check out our websites for our website for all the ways you can get involved um, with community and go deeper in community here at Hills Church. So vital for your growth and for your faith, your spiritual growth. Um, the last thing is this, many of you probably got the email or saw the email or the announcement, had a chance to fill out the survey. Thank you. Uh, roughly 500 of you actually filled out the survey around our service times, either uh, physically in person or digitally online. So now the moment you've all been waiting for, drum roll everyone. One or two services, 10 a.m., 10.30, if we're sticking at one. A um, lot went into this. I'm going to keep you in suspense for a, a little bit longer. A um, lot went into it, man. We looked at all the data, looked at all your responses. Again, thank you for all of that. But when we really came down to it, based on your responses and based on a couple other factors, some of those being the rooted class that we're going to launch this fall, which is our primary discipleship course, um, the experience for our first-time guests, especially in kids' ministry and for our volunteer teams. Um, and really, at the end of the day, for me as a pastor, the experience of community that we have with one service is so vitally important for us. We have decided to stick with one gathering at 10.30 a.m. One gathering at 10.30 a.m. heading into the fall. And I know there, there were some of you who prefer a 9 or a 10.45 um, or a 10 a.m. And I, I just want to say this. We really, my heart is we want to offer the best possible experience, not just for the people that call this their home, their church home, but also those who are joining us for the first time. And um, I'm so grateful for a facility like this. We still have room to have one service for a little while longer. Obviously, if we, uh, if we keep growing, the one service reality is not going to be possible for too much longer, but we will give you a heads up um, if and when we're going to change that at any point this fall. But for now and heading into the fall, we're going to stick with one service at 1030 a.m. Okay. Um, Let's pray, and then we're going to dive into God's Word for today. Uh, Lord, I thank you so much for your Word. Lord, I thank you so much for um, those 36 individuals who are taking a step of faith today to get baptized. Lord, how exciting that we get to be a part of their journey, their story today. Lord, I pray right now as we continue in the book of Exodus and look at the journey of your people out of slavery and bondage and into freedom and moving towards the promised land. Lord, I pray you would set us free in our hearts. Lord, I pray through this that we would come to know the gospel at even a deeper level. And Lord, that we would feel the joy and the freedom that you won for us on the cross. 
I ask all this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So um, I, I've mentioned this a couple times, but I've been running more recently, more than I've ever run in my entire life. In fact, trying to get ready for this race that I am massively regretting signing up for, massively regretting telling all of you about, because now I feel accountable for this thing. And most recently, I, I did the longest you know run on my training plan leading up to this thing. And somewhere with a few miles left to go in this training run, my legs went on straight strike completely and just said, we, we are not going any further. What are you doing? Stop, stop running already. Right. Um, but one of the, the funny parts about training for a race like this and trying to get ready for it, especially if you've never done one before is your body does adapt over time, which is kind of cool to see if you stick with it. And then the other thing that happens is you get introduced to an entire new community of people, like a subculture you did not know existed. People that wake up at insane hours in the morning to run crazy distances. And, uh, you know, especially when you're going to run a really long distance in the mountains on a trail, you typically want to find someone else who's crazy enough to go with you. A lot can go wrong. You know, I've had a couple falls, nothing too tragic or crazy, but it's better to run with other people. And uh, in this process, as I've got to meet some of the running community in our area, and we did this, we decided to do this really long run on this past Friday, um, you get into conversation with people because you have hours together on the trail. And you're meeting strangers for the first time, and you're getting to know about them a little bit. And for me, as a pastor, there's always this one moment where, where the question is raised by somebody, you know, as we're running or we're in the group, most of the time we're all kind of meeting each other for the first time. Maybe there's a few people you've run with before, but somebody will ask me, and maybe it's an hour, an hour and a half into the run. So what do you do? And I promise you from that moment onward, the relationship is forever changed depending on how I answer that question, right? And I'm always honest. I say, well, um, I'm a pastor of a church, which is often, you know, responded to with, oh, wow. Like, that's one way to live your life, I guess. <laughs> they don't say things like that, but it's, 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 you know, a little bit confused. And then there's this silence. I know they're examining everything they said for the past hour, wondering... <laughs> do I need to like say sorry or repent of something? You know, they just don't know how to talk to you after that. And that's just, you know, one of the things that a pastor has to deal with, which is fine. Um, but then after they, you know, accept the fact that, you know, they're running with this holy man of God, um, just kidding. But, uh, you know, they, they eventually ask, especially if they didn't grow up in church or they didn't, um, they're not familiar with church. They're not, uh, they don't come from a Christian background. They, they eventually ask if they care enough to, so what does a pastor do? <laughs> Which I'm sure many of you are asking the same question, right? Stand up there one day a week, Jonathan, give a speech and then chill, right? Uh, no, not exactly. That's a big part of it. But, uh, you know, I thought about it because I was running with the guy on Friday. We're a couple hours in. The question came up. The conversation got awkward for a minute. And then he went for it and said, okay, so what does a pastor do? And I said, well, because I've had to answer that question so many times in my life, I thought I'll, I'll just start, you know, with some of the basics and we'll see where it goes from there. I said, uh, you know, as a pastor, I... I often find myself stepping into people's lives or getting invited into people's lives at some of the highest highs and some of the lowest lows. Um, I get the joy of participating in weddings. A lot of weddings get to see people get married, get to offer wedding vows, be a part of those moments. Um, sometimes I'm in, the, I'm in the hospital praying over new babies that are born in our congregation. I get to be a part of dedicating children whose parents want their children to be dedicated to the Lord. We get to be a part of some amazing moments. And 
The other side of that is we are invited into some of the hardest moments in people's lives. When, man, people hit rock bottom, when they're in the hospital, not because they're having a baby, but because they're facing an unexpected diagnosis. I've had to do more funerals in the past two years than I've had to do in my previous 13 years of ministry combined. There's a lot of heartbreak, heartache. There's a lot of complicated situations that we step into. And in some ways, you're kind of on call and you never know when those things are gonna happen. So that's, that's a part of what I do. We, we pray as pastors, many of us pray, and I hope you do the same thing because this isn't just reserved for me up here. This is something all of us should be doing, entering into people's lives and the joys and the sorrows and walking with them so that we can be the, the literal physical presence of Christ to them. We are not their savior, but we are an expression of God's love for them. I went on to explain some other things that our church does. I said, you know, our, our church as a community of faith, we, we have a big emphasis on community care and compassion and outreach. We partner with homeless shelters. We partner with recovery ministries. We partner with pregnancy crisis centers. We are um, a part of the Eldorado County Food Bank. We provide food for those in need every single Tuesdays. We serve local schools and first responders. For a while, we were a Red Cross evacuation center during the, the fires that happened. Was that last year or two years ago? It all runs together. We provide uh, turkeys to families in need on Thanksgiving. We provide Christmas morning gifts to families in need. We give backpacks to kids who maybe couldn't afford backpacks on their own for their first day of school. We build houses in Mexico. We sponsor children in Brazil and build child development centers that employ local Brazilians to not only care for children, but to educate them and to share the good news of Christ with them. We provide positive environments and fun camps for elementary age kids, middle schoolers, and high schoolers. We really care about investing in the next generation. And as I was talking about all this stuff, you know, he was like, man, I had no idea like the church was involved in all this stuff. And I was like, yeah. And it's all basically run by volunteers and a few staff, mostly volunteers. It's a volunteer organization. But when I tried to boil it all down and really answer his question, and this is kind of where, you know, you get to the heart of the issue, we do a lot of amazing things as a church. But when you get down to the heart of it, what do I do as a pastor? What do you do as the body of Christ? What are we called to do as a church? I said, man, the main thing I do, though, as we were talking and I responded to him, I said, my main responsibility in this life is to share the gospel. I don't know if he's ever heard that word before. I don't think he had based on our ensuing conversation. Uh, you know, I said, the gospel is just the good news of how Jesus saved us. And I didn't include the sin and death right at that point. I just said, um, I did in a second, and I'll tell you why. I said, you know, it's every week I get up and I, I preach from the Bible and I give people an opportunity to respond to the gospel, the good news of how God saved us through his son, Jesus, when he died on a cross and overcame death, rose from the dead. And he asked me a very sincere question at that point. He said, when you say saved us, what do you mean by that? Saved us from what? That's why I added sin and death. <laughs> Could add Satan on the end of that as well as you wanted to. Saved us from this reality of sin and death. I, I explained, I had the opportunity to explain that, man, as a Christian, what we know is that we are not just physical, biological bodies, human beings on planet earth for a short period of time. And then we, you know, return to the dust and sort of fade away into nothingness. That is not all there is to life. That's not what we believe. You see, we believe we are both body and soul. 
We believe every person on this planet, every person in this room is going to live forever. Forever, for all eternity, you will exist forever. For a while, if Christ does not return, I didn't get this deep, but at the end of the day, for you guys in the room, for a while, if Christ tarries, if he doesn't return, when you physically die, your soul, your spirit will go and be with the Lord until Christ returns and then our spirits are reunited with a glorified body that is designed for eternity, designed forever without sin, suffering, sorrow in the new heavens and the new earth. And I said, you know, to simplify this, what I share, what the good news is, what the gospel is, what we're about as a church is that what has gone wrong with the world is called sin. When we turned away from God, death entered the scene. Death entered into our lives. Sin began to infect every person on the planet. And when we cut ourselves off from the source of life, who is God the Father, we began to die. And so Jesus, we believe, is our only hope to cure us from sin, to forgive us from sin through his death on the cross. And then he took on death. He's the only person to overcome death. And through faith in him, we can experience the same new life, never-ending life, eternal life that Jesus has. That's what we believe. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the main thing I do is I want to give a compelling case for why we believe that to be true. And I want to share that good news with people every single week. That's why we exist as a church. And then we, we form into communities of faith and we learn what it means to follow Jesus together. Now, you know, we had a lot more conversation around that we had a long run together that day. And after a while, we shifted on to something else. No, he did not get saved on the side of a mountain. He did not get baptized in Lake Tahoe. Um, but it did bring some clarity for him. And I understand too, even in that moment, for me, how awkward this must sound or how you know strange it must sound to think I'm in need of saving especially when you have no grid for something called sin. To think that death is not a part of God's intentional design for this world. To think of the fact that there's a way into eternal life where even though your body may die here and now, your soul is going to live forever in heaven or in hell with God or separated from him. And God has made a way for you to return back to life through Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And quite frankly, to somebody who's never heard that before, someone that is not familiar with that, it, it, it sounds foreign. But there is a moment in everyone's life where there, I believe there's at least the hope that this life is not all there is, that there's something beyond the grave. There's some realization in every person, I believe that there's a part of me that's not just biological chemicals and you know neurological firings in my brain. There's a spiritual component to who I am as a human being created in God's image. And I think deep down, all of us are aware of that at one level or another. Jesus says this in John 5, 23 to 24. It says, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life. I love this. This is the, the center point of the gospel. Raises the dead and gives them life. That's what church is about. We can do all the awesome stuff we can unleash compassion. We are for the 50. We are going to serve people and we're going to do good deeds. All that's a part of it for sure. But the main thing we do is we share the good news of how the Father raises the dead and gives them life. So also the Son gives life to whom he will. I tell you the truth. Those who listen, this is Jesus talking, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me, have eternal life. 
They will never be condemned for their sins. He goes on. They have already, and he's making a reference to the book of Exodus right here. They have already crossed over from death into life. And I assure you that the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when the dead, those who are spiritually dead, spiritually asleep, will hear my voice, and those who listen will live. They will live. They will come alive in their soul because now their soul is united to the one who is life, that is Jesus. And the only way you get united to Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, is by faith believing that he died for you, believing that he is God's path to eternal life and salvation. They will hear my voice and they will live. The father has life in himself. The father is the source of life. God is the originator and the source of life. You exist today because God willed it to be so. You would not be here without God. He is the source of life. Life is only found in him. And he has granted that same life-giving power to his son, Jesus. Friends, this is why we exist as a church. This is why we gather and worship on Sundays. This is why we share the good news of the gospel. This is why you support the work of the church with your tithes and offerings. This is why we care about spreading this message to the next generation and baptism Sundays because we want people to encounter life, the only true life that can only be found through a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's why we exist. And so what does this have to do with the Exodus? How does this connect? How does it fit into the story of the Exodus? Well, what we're going to look at today, and if you're taking notes, you can scratch this down as the title. The Lord will fight for you. There's this amazing verse Right after the Passover, after the Israelites have been released, set free from Egypt, from their slavery and bondage in Egypt, two million people, the people of God, now stepping out of Egypt, out of their slavery, heading towards the promised land. There's a moment in this story, and we're going to read about it here in just a second, where their back is against the wall. The Egyptians come back after them. They say to themselves, the Egyptians say to themselves, what have we done? How could we have let them go? We had so much prosperity. They were our workforce. They were our manpower. We have to get them back. And in this moment of despair and desperation, when the Israelites are full of fear and terror, God, Moses says to them, stand still and watch the salvation of God. He's going to fight for you. The Lord will fight for you on this day. And friends, that's a picture of what our baptism is about. That's a picture of what our salvation is about. And so we're going to look at this together briefly, and then I'm going to show how this ties into baptism, and then I'm going to give an invitation for you today to accept the life-giving, the only life-giving faith that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Exodus 13 Verse 17, it starts like this. When Pharaoh finally, that word finally is well-placed. It's been a long journey to this moment. Let the people go. God did not lead them along the main road that runs through Philistine territory. Even though that was the shortest route to the promised land, God said, if the people are faced with a battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led them in a roundabout way through the wilderness toward the Red Sea. The Israelites left Sukkoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went ahead of them. He guided them during the day with a pillar of cloud and he provided light at night with a pillar of fire. This allowed them to travel by day or by night and the Lord did not remove the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire from its place in front of the people. Chapter 14, then the Lord gave these instructions to Moses, order the Israelites to turn back. I'm going to show you on a map what this means in just a second. Turn back and camp by 
I don't know how to say that word. Pi Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea, camp there along the shore across from Baal Zephon. Then Pharaoh will think, the Israelites are confused. They're trapped in the wilderness. And once again, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will chase after you. I've planned this in order to display my glory through Pharaoh and his whole army. After this, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites camped there as they were told. Now, before we get into this much further, I think it's important because there's one thing that's difficult as you go through this passage of scripture, at least for me, what comes up over and over again is, what about the Egyptians? I mean, we're about to read the story of one of the most amazing deliverances in the entire Bible where God parts the Red Sea and saves his people miraculously and then destroys the entire Egyptian army in one swoop. And there were moments as I read this where I thought, gosh, Lord, you, you hardened Pharaoh's heart and you kind of set this whole situation up. What about the Egyptians? And we see just a few verses earlier, he says, so that all the Egyptians will know that I am God. And here's what's interesting to me, because we can't miss this when we read scripture. The Egyptians always had a choice. Before God ever hardened Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. Pharaoh said, who is this God? I'm not listening to him. I don't care what you tell me, Moses or Aaron. My gods are stronger than your God. That's why you're my slaves. Clearly, your God is not that big of a concern to me. And then the true God, the one true God, Yahweh, proceeds to demonstrate who he is and how powerful he is through a series of signs and wonders and plagues. He gives them chance after chance after chance to let the people go and Pharaoh and the Egyptians refuse. And now they finally let the people go. They harden their hearts again. And God sets up this incredible scenario, this showdown on the, on the shores of the Red Sea. And you have to remember that what the Egyptians are about to see, they're about to see the physical manifestation of Yahweh. They've already experienced the 10 signs and wonders, the plagues that came upon Egypt. They know how powerful Yahweh is. They know he's stronger than all of their gods that are not gods. They know who they're dealing with and they still think they can win. This is the height of human arrogance. And then imagine this, you come around the corner and down towards the Red Sea and you see a pillar of cloud and fire. And you're thinking, yeah, I got this. No, you don't. I don't care how many chariots you have. I don't care how big your army is. I don't care if you're the biggest empire superpower on the planet. You're fighting God and he's right there. You should turn around or you're going to die but they don't. They keep pursuing. It's important to remember that. So I want to give us a little picture of this because what we have to understand, this is a modern map. Obviously, uh, Cairo did not exist uh, several thousand years ago, uh, so we can X that out. But Ramesses was the capital, and it was up here in the midst of the Fertile Crescent, the rivers, and when they left, Goshen, which is where the Israelites lived, was here. And they left through this route, heading this direction towards um, Migdal. Now, what it said in chapter 13 was, God did not take them on the normal route straight to the promised land because the Philistines were there and he thought, okay, on day one, I'm not gonna you know, present them with a battle against the Philistines. They might just give up and turn back to Egypt, which we'll see in a second. That's what they almost do. He takes them down by the Red Sea, which you know, seems like a strange route to take if you're trying to get over here to Canaan, the, Israel, the, the land of Israel, the promised land. And right around um, somewhere Baal, Zephron, or whatever it was, God tells Moses to turn around. Somewhere in here, he says, I want you to turn back. I want you to camp right at Migdol, right on the edge of the sea. I want you to start heading back towards Egypt. 
That's a bizarre thing. If you're Moses or the people of Israel, you're thinking, uh, we just left Egypt. I really don't want to go anywhere near that place. It's probably going to tempt Pharaoh to come and get us. He's going to hear that we're out here wandering around in the wilderness. And God said, I know, but I, I have to make a statement I have to show you something that you're going to remember for thousands upon thousands of years. I have to show you what my salvation is all about. This is going to be a picture that I use, an example that I use for everyone to come after you of what my salvation is about and how I'm going to save you. He says, turn around. I want you to camp right on the edge of the sea in Migdal. In verse 5, chapter 14, it says this, When word reached the king of Egypt that the Israelites had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. What have we done? Letting all the Israelite slaves get away. So Pharaoh harnessed his chariot, called up his troops. He took with him 600 of Egypt's best commanders, chariots, along with the rest of the chariots of Egypt, each with its commander, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, so he chased after the people of Israel who had left with fists raised in defiance. The Egyptians chased after them with all the forces in Pharaoh's army, all his horses and chariots, his charioteers, his troops. The Egyptians caught up with the people of Israel as they were camped beside the shore near Piharoth, across from Baal Zephon, which is also Migdol. As Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and panicked. Trust me, you would too. When they saw the Egyptians overtaking them, they cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. They said, we're going to die. I mean, look at where we are, Moses. Our back is literally against the wall. The Red Sea is behind us. In front of us is the mightiest army on the face of the planet. They have chariots. They have armor. They have spears. They have swords. They have commanders. We have donkeys and women and children and carts with food. We have no shot here, Moses. What have you done to us? God was the one that told him to turn around and camp there. Moses said to the people, Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. Stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. The Lord will fight for you. The Lord himself will fight for you. You need only to be silent. Some translations say still. Can you even imagine in the face of opposition like that, I mean, I imagine the men in the camp, you know, shuffling the women and the children to the back, grabbing, you know, whatever tools that they had, agricultural tools, shovels, rakes, whatever they may have had, plowshares, and heading to the front of the line, trembling in terror as the full might of the Egyptian army was about to charge down on them and destroy them. And Moses goes, guys, Watch this. God's going to fight for you. And then Moses turns around to God and um, he says, he kind of freaks out to the Lord. Lord, you better come through for real. I know I just told all the people that you're going to fight for them, but this is, this is a tight spot. This is bad. The Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Just tell the people to move forward. Lord, that's not really helpful. 
There's no forward to go. We are on the edge of the sea. What do you mean? Like forward towards the Egyptians or forward towards the sea? Both of those feel like death. There's no way we're making it across the Red Sea. There's no way we're defeating the Egyptians. God says, move forward. I'm going to fight for you. Watch my salvation today. And then God says something even more unbelievable to Moses. He goes, pick up your staff, raise your hand over the sea. I will divide the water so the Israelites can walk through the middle of the sea on dry ground. What? It's like Jesus saying to Peter, come on out here, walk on the water. Come on. What? Moses is like, God, this is not a strategy. I've, what are you talking about? I'm just going to stick my staff over the water of the ocean, the Red Sea, and you're going to split it in half, and we're going to walk through it? And I just imagine the heart of God for thousands upon thousands of generations wanting all of us to understand and know your salvation can never be earned or accomplished on your own. I'm setting up a scenario. I'm setting up a scenario that is humanly impossible for you to get out of. Your only hope here is Yahweh. Your only hope is Elohim. Your only hope is El Shaddai, is the God of all creation. Your only hope is Jesus Christ. There is one road to life. There is one road out of death into life, and that is the road I'm going to make for you through the sea, through the middle of the Red Sea. You're not in a tight spot, Moses. You're in an impossible spot. And I did that on purpose because I need this story to be told for all generations and it's going to be a picture of how I'm going to save the world. And there's only one way back to life. There's only one road that leads out of death into life for all time. And I'm the one that's going to make that road and He's going to come many, many years from now, but his name is going to be Jesus, and he's going to be the only road back into life. You can't fight your way out of this one. There are no other gods that can rescue you here. You have one option. Move forward and trust me and let me fight for you. Literally, just Stand still and watch the salvation of God. But when I tell you to move, just walk and I'm going to save you. And so they begin to walk. And the seas are parted. I think about baptism what we're about to experience, the Lake Day baptisms. I think about this reality of salvation. The Israelites here on the edge of the Red Sea, they've just come out of Egypt. The Egyptian army is bearing down upon them. There's so many things that I can hit on in this, but I wanna show you one thing because I imagine, I imagine there was a moment where even Moses said, okay, God, even if this works, even if I stretch my staff out over the sea and you actually part the waters, there's two million of us here. The Egyptians are right there. They're, they're coming after us. We're, we're not gonna get across the sea before we get overtaken by them. We have women and children and donkeys. They have chariots and horses and military soldiers. And right then this happens. It says, the angel of God who had been leading the people of Israel moved to the rear of the camp. The pillar of cloud also moved from the front and stood behind them. The cloud settled, listen to this, settled between, settled between the Egyptian and the Israelite camps. As darkness fell, the cloud turned to fire fire by night, lighting up the night, separating the Egyptians and the Israelites all night. 
Do you know that this word, the angel of God, the angel of the Lord, it's often thought by theologians that this is a pre-incarnate uh, name for Jesus. It's not an angel, it's actually the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ because oftentimes the angel of the Lord is used interchangeably with the word God, Yahweh throughout the Old Testament. And so in many ways, this is a picture of what Christ does. This is a picture of how salvation works. God parts the waters. He does the miracle. He gives you the road back to life while Christ stands between you and certain death. Christ covered the rear of the camp. I'll never forget the late Tim Keller who recently passed away. He shared a story in one of his sermons and to me, it was just such a good picture of what's happening here. There was a young boy that he was walking with from his church on the street with his father one day. It was after church, they were walking to lunch and the boy asked Dr. Keller, who was the pastor of Redeemer Prez in New York City for many years, he was asking him questions about the gospel. You know, why did Jesus have to die? How does the gospel work? And Tim Keller responded, it was so brilliant, right there on the, the side of a New York City street as city buses were passing by, Tim Keller said, you see that bus? Little boy said, yes. And he asked the question, he said, well, let me ask you a question. Would you rather get hit by the bus or the shadow of the bus? Because the shadow of the bus, as the bus went by, it would, it would go right over them. And the little boy said, the shadow, of course. I don't feel the shadow. And Tim Keller said, well, Jesus got hit by the bus so that we would only have to experience the shadow of death. He got hit by the full force. He stood in the path of the full force of, sin, full force of sin and death and all of its consequences. He went to battle with Satan and all of his minions. He said, I'm gonna take it all so that you don't experience the full separation from the Father. You don't experience the full weight of death, eternal death. I'm gonna take that for you on the cross so that you can walk through the middle of the sea back to the Father. I'm gonna guard you at the rear of the camp from certain death so that you can move toward life, eternal life. Friends, Baptism is described for us in Colossians 2, verse 12 to 15. Listen to what Paul says about baptism. This is what we're gonna celebrate today. It says this, you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. When you see those 36 people going under the water today, that's a symbol that they've put their faith in Christ and they believe that Christ not only died on a cross but was buried in a tomb, experienced the full force of death, all of it. Experienced the full force of separation from life, from his Father, from God. When you go into the water, it's like being buried with Christ. And here's the deal, no one comes back from death. No one gets out of that water on their own. And baptism symbolizes this, and with him, with who? Jesus. You were raised just as Jesus was raised to new life. You're raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Friends, have you ever noticed how baptism is passive for the person getting baptized? If you've ever seen it before, what do you do when you're getting baptized? You just stand there, you bend your knees, and then the person baptizing you asks you, have you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you believe that he died for you on the cross? Do you believe that he rose from the dead and that by faith in him, you're raised to new life in your soul and your spirit? And when you respond, yes, all you do is lean back and the, 
the person or the people baptizing you, they lower you under the water. And you don't fight your way out in your own strength. You rest there, you wait. Hopefully they don't leave you under there for too long. But you're dependent on them to bring you out. In the same way, we are dependent on Christ to bring us through the water to the other side, to life. That's what baptism is about. It's a visual representation of the most important thing we do as a church, which is share the gospel. The way back to life, the way back to the Father, the way through death into eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ. Then God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by what? Nailing it to a cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. That's why we cheer and celebrate when people come out of the water because it's a reminder that Christ was victorious over sin and death and all the spiritual realm of, of darkness. And in that place, we celebrate because now we too, we're on the other side of the sea. And just as the waters collapsed upon the Egyptian army, when in their arrogance, they thought they could fight against God, and just as not a single one of them survived. What the cross says is this, no accusation against you has survived. No condemnation against you has survived. All your sin and shame and guilt is washed away. You are no longer in Egypt, you are free. Yep, you're in the wilderness now. You're on the way to the promised land and there's a journey ahead of you, but you are completely free from sin and shame and death in your soul and your spirit. And one day you'll be free from it entirely when Jesus returns and makes all things new. That's the gospel, friends. And so right now, by faith in Christ, you can have new life you can be restored, reconnected to the source of life through Jesus. The application of Exodus to our lives, you think, all right, what's my, what's my big takeaway, pastor? What do I need to do this week? Stand still and be silent and watch what God, just ponder what God has done for you. You had no way, you were dead in your sin. You had no way across. And God said, I'm gonna make a path for you to return to life through my son, Jesus. But you gotta move forward and you gotta take that path by faith. And so right now is your opportunity to choose Christ by faith. And today, today is your opportunity to get baptized if you choose him by faith. Maybe you were baptized as an infant, as a child, it wasn't your choice. You had no faith at that point. You never experienced being joined to Christ in his death and raised to new life through baptism in the water. If that's you, I would encourage you to join us at the lake today. Right at noon, after the service, drive down 50. We got everything you need. You can run home and grab a bathing suit. Baptisms are around one o'clock, but make that decision, make that choice, get baptized today. I wanna lead us in a prayer in this moment of salvation because just as Colossians shared with us, he says this, Paul, the writer of Colossians, he says, you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. Have you trusted God by faith? The way you put your trust in him by faith is by declaring that to him in your heart through a prayer. So I wanna invite everyone to close their eyes heads bowed, and I wanna invite you, if you've never prayed a prayer of putting your faith in Christ and experiencing the new life of God, I want you to pray with me now. Just want you to say something like this in your heart. Say, Jesus, I believe you died on a cross for my sins. I believe your death cleanses me from all my sins. Through your death on the cross, tell him thank you that I receive your forgiveness, 
your mercy. In your heart, tell him, I believe you rose from the dead. You conquered death. I believe you ascended to the right hand of the Father. Put your trust in him. Say to him, I believe that by faith I am saved. I am raised from death to life. With eyes closed and heads bowed, if you prayed that prayer today, would you be so brave as just to raise your hand and let me know? Wow, thank you. Friends, the the pathway back to life is open. The door is open. The sea has been parted through Jesus Christ and it remains open, but you have to move forward by faith. If you raised your hand and you have not been baptized, I would encourage you, show up today, get baptized. Many of you raised your hands. If you raised your hand and you want a Bible, you want some resources for what it means to grow in your faith, please see one of us at the welcome tent. We have a sign-up station right through those back doors for baptisms if you wanna get baptized today. Friends, take that step. God would say to you the same thing he said to the Israelites, move forward, don't stay where you're at. Today is the day of salvation. You've heard the gospel, the good news. Take a step, it will change your life. It will begin to change your life forever. Amen. Friends, we're gonna close by taking communion together. I love this because every week we remember that Christ died for us on the cross. The bread represents his body that was broken for us and the juice represents the blood that was shed for us. Let's take a moment now to remember what Christ has done for us. Thank you for listening to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you haven't already, give us a rating so we know how this has impacted your journey with God. To learn more about us, visit our website at hills.church. We'll see you next time.